Welcome to Call of Your Soul. Welcome back to Call of Your Soul. This is episode two with Dan Ellis and Amy Piper. And today we're going to be talking about empaths and emotions. And before we get started, we're going to ease our way into our content for today. So if you're in a place to do so, I invite you to take a seat and close the eyes. And feel and connect to your body. Feel the sensations through your body. Allowing any thoughts to pass through. And then connecting to your soul, your spirit guides, everything on the etheric level. And then inviting a deep breath in from the belly. Little pause at the top. And release. And first we welcome in Amy. Amy, how are we feeling this morning? Great. I'm excited to be here. So empaths and emotions. So uh, first we talked about really making this definition clear uh, about what we mean, um, because especially with something that has um, a lot of aspects of subtle sense awareness and potentially some people put in interpretations that have other dynamics like information through the mind or through the brain, um, we just want to get clear on, on what it is we mean when we say empath. Um, so would you maybe just want to kind of go through a, a quick definition of, of uh, what we're referencing? Yeah, actually, I think you had a great definition of that, um, Dan. Why don't you offer that? Okay. So what we had talked about is an empath is someone who is sensitive to the sensations and emotions of other beings. We see empathic ability as one of many of the subtle sense awareness channels of one person's being. In our view, the mental or the cognitive exchange happens on a different level than what we would consider empathic. And there is a book out there um, that's pretty widespread about empaths by Judith Orlov, uh, who's a psychiatrist. It's called The Empath Survival Guide. And uh, I just wanted to... Um, touch on this definition that she had put in the book um, and, and kind of differentiate from uh, where our interpretation comes in. So in uh, the first sentence of her definition, it says empaths have an extremely reactive neurological system. And I think, Amy, you would agree. In, in our view, we wouldn't necessarily say every empath is uh, reactive uh, in terms of their neurological system. Um, that may be someone who doesn't have quite enough training yet in is in, you know, a uh, reactive state. Um, so someone who has training, I think, would take a moment and pause and then respond and be at choice. I think reactive denotes someone who's really not at choice um, in terms of the reaction that they have with the person in front of them. Would, would you agree with that? Yeah, I would. And I also would just say that, you know, um, sometimes we have a reaction first, right? And then we take the pause. Because the reaction is part of the part of the nervous system that just reacts without any co conscious thought. 
Um, so we have a reaction. And then when we're trained, then we pause, we take a breath, we notice, and then we can respond. Right. So I think it's important to distinguish that there is, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're have no choice to respond and reactive by being an empath. Um, and then she expands uh, by saying, we don't have the same filters that other people do to block out stimulation. As a consequence, we absorb into our own bodies both the positive and the stressful energies around us. So again, I think it's this kind of the same principle. Uh, and this is, you know, maybe we can touch on, uh, you know, the skin uh, that necessary for an empath, you know, to be comfortable in the world. And again, being at choice, and this is kind of the other way, instead of uh, being at choice in the output and how we respond, but being at choice with the input and what we take in and what we receive. Yeah. And, you know, not having read Judith's book, I mean, I can't really comment as much on what she said. I think that you said there was some really good stuff in there. Um, but it's also useful to distinguish like our and how we're thinking about it from her terms and how she's thinking about it, because a lot of um, people are going to have already read the book and a lot of you might be interested in reading it. Um, it seems like it's a very useful, uh, it has some really useful stuff in it. Right. Uh, and then one other thing I'd like to uh, to bring up, and then uh, we can put away the definitions uh, for now, is this is just from WebMD. Um, and so kind of a more uh, scientific understanding. Uh, they're saying an empath is an individual who feels more empathy than the average human. Empaths are exceptionally sensitive to the emotions and frame of mind of nearby individuals. Empathy is a natural state that enables a person to build an emotional connection through cognition with under and other individuals. Uh, so where I think we would uh, definitely agree with uh, empaths being exceptionally sensitive to the emotions, but where we may differ slightly is uh, in terms of the cognitive, uh, when they say frame of mind. But uh, I think by and large, we're, we're speaking to kind of the same phenomenon yeah, I think so. And there are also um, some of us talk about what it is to be a cognitive empath. And um, that actually means that you are sensitive to the emotions of other people, but you may not really have the secondary piece of um, empathetic, empathetic care, like I care about this person's emotions. So um, there may be a little crossover there in the sense that, yes, I have a strong sense of what other people are feeling, I don't really feel a sense of caring about it. And of course, when that happens, that can be used for positive purposes and it can be used, misused to um, manipulate people for your own gain. Um, just like any gift or power can be used well or misused. <laughs> Right. So not going too much into the psychology side, but would that tend to be a definition of someone who has a disorder who maybe feels what other people feel, but doesn't care? Or is that not necessarily the case? Well, that's a great question, Dan, because it is true that sometimes people who have a disorder in which they're not connected to their, um, their caring side uh, have this cognitive empathy and, and abuse it. Um, but a lot of people also may have cognitive empathy in that they understand the feelings and needs of other people and they use it for positive purposes, such as, um, you know, I don't know, just what comes to my mind is, you know, marketing and sales. 
which again can be misused or used to benefit people, right? But if I have a clear understanding of other people's emotions and needs, then it makes me better able to help them understand why this is a good product for them, why this will help them. So that would just be one example of how that could be used um, in a really positive way rather than a negative way. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that definitely makes sense. And so in your view, like, does it seem like, because we, we kind of come up with a a word, a term like empath, and and then we describe it, and it with that definition, it kind of makes it seems like there's people that are that and people that aren't. But is it potentially more something like a spectrum of varying sensitivity? So there's just people that are very, very highly in tune and very sensitive and feel what's like most of everything, what's going on with other people. And then there's people that just feel much less. Um, or is it or is it kind of more like, yeah, there really is a group of people and we call them impasse that are very sensitive. And there's some people that may have really no um, kind of radar on the, the sensations and emotions happening in other people. Yeah, I would say that both are true. I mean, I think that like any other intuitive ability, um, we have the capacity, all of us, just like math or music too, you know, we all have some degree. We can mostly add one plus one. We can, you know, appreciate music perhaps. So we all have a certain ability, but our natural talent is different. It's unique from person to person. How we like to apply that talent is different. And whether we're even interested in developing it is different. Also, I would just say that some of us can become over-entangled in the empathic skill. And that's for reasons that we can talk about later in this podcast. Other people may shut down to varying degrees to their skill to protect themselves from being overwhelmed. So becoming a mature empath really goes far beyond protecting yourself and moves into learning how to understand and develop your talent and to align it with what's important to you. You have, to your point, Dan, we have a lot of choices in how we engage and how much we engage and what it's aligned with. Right. And that kind of brings us to the value of having empathic skill. And you brought up, you know, the uh, example of someone who does sales, right? Being able to kind of feel how uh, engaged someone is interested, uh, and kind of playing on, not playing on, but playing with, not, not playing with, but understanding the emotions of the other people mm-hmm. and, uh, and then choosing, you know, how they're going to interact accordingly. Um, and, and fun- you know, sales is a function of every business. And, uh, I think this is also true of just being a good friend, um, you know, being a good colleague, uh, you know, be good, being a good member of the community is, uh, you know, having the empathic skill to, tune in to what other people are feeling and, and to enable, to enable yourself to be of greater support for their needs, uh, to be aware of their needs and, and to be able to help them, uh, meet those. So maybe let's, uh, kind of segue to the value, uh, and kind of expand upon the different values of, of having and cultivating, uh, the empathic skill. Yeah. I mean, I would say it's especially beneficial in professional areas like counseling, medicine, and the healing arts. Um, it's a wonderful application, as you said, to be a valuable part of a community. And a wonderful application is having awareness of the feelings and needs of our children or of other vulnerable people in our world and in our environment, because then we're more adept 
at offering wise and caring assistance. Yeah, and that kind of makes me think like it almost seems necessary if you're in a uh, profession such as counseling. Uh, it would it be possible? Do you think to be like a successful and and good counselor, but not really being aware and in tune with the sensation and emotions of the person you're working with? I would think that that would be difficult. Um, and there may be approaches there, you know, you learn a certain set of skills that you can apply and you just apply them kind of in a um, cognitive or flat way. But I mean, even cognitive, you know, therapy, I'm, you know, the empathic skill can come into that. I mean, I'm not saying it can't. So, you know, I really don't know the answer to that. I mean, it seems to me that that would be a tough thing to do. Um, but at the same time, there may be skill sets and approaches that work without a large amount of empathic ability. Yeah, I know there's, uh, uh, I think it's applied behavioral analysis uh, with, with kids that have autism. And, um, you know, it's a very structured, you know, regimented uh, type approach. And, um, you know, I, I think it kind of, it has its own merit for uh, using that approach and that it's very consistent. Um, so that seems to kind of, you know, not really have a, a need for empathic skill and, and make choices according to, you know, the emotions of uh, the child that you're working with, but, you know, has its own merits in its own right. And I guess, you know, like um, there may be certain forms of psychiatry where, uh, you know, it's it needs to be uh, a little bit more objective in a sense, um, you know, to not let someone's own interpretation, you know, influence too greatly the decisions that they make for, you know, how they care for the other person. But um, yeah, I think that kind of leads us naturally into uh, some of the challenges that are brought up uh, with with being empathic and being sensitive to the emotions of others. Uh, I, I guess it would be a maybe a good place to start uh, with some of the main challenges that you see in your work. Yeah, I think it's useful to mention that um, as we go into the challenges that empathic awareness can extend to, you may be picking up on things from other individuals or from groups of individuals. I would call that the collective emotional vibration. Um, you may also even be picking up emotional vibrations from animals, even plants and um, spaces. Like there can be a lingering emotional vibration in a specific area, a specific location. Like if you ever walked into a room and you just went, and maybe there's nobody even in the room, but you just like stopped and went, whoa, <laughs> you know, it just <laughs> feels like there's a lot of something going on in here and it feels, you know, intense. And that's often because, you know, something intense has taken place between people um, in that space and it might not have gotten resolved and the energy hasn't been cleared. And some of us are even attuned mm. to the planet as a whole. So, you know, if we don't understand our gift, then you can imagine how being immersed in vibrational fields when we don't really understand how that's affecting us. That can be really a challenge for anybody, but especially for people um, who are highly empathic and attuned to certain kinds of um, fields of emotional energy. Yeah, so it's like there's there's so many layers in which we could have potential stimuli come into our field, right? With the location that we're in, the physical space, uh, animals, uh, 
you know, the things that were left over from people being there before, the people that are currently in here, uh, different collectives of people, and the planet as a whole. So that's that's quite a lot of potential stimuli for us to sift through and process in real time. So it seems like a, a natural challenge is how do we avoid uh, becoming overwhelmed? And I think this is a, a big part of the, the skill set of developing the empathic skin and, um, you know, having some kind of layers of choice and, and protection, like a membrane of what we allow to, to let in and, and how much it influences us. Yeah, for sure. That is for sure one of the primary challenges is not becoming overwhelmed. And what I find with a lot of people is that we have chosen, you know, consciously or unconsciously, like we get overwhelmed. And so we kind of shut down, like we create sort of a wall. But then we feel um, maybe lonely. Uh, we're used to more emotional contact. So we feel isolated. Um, and then we want to open back up, but then we open back up and get overwhelmed. So there's this kind of like, you know, open, like fully opening and fully closing. And neither is really satisfying. And so to what you said about a skin, that's what we'd like to do is create a kind of a skin. Um, and there are, you know, different ways to think about doing that. I mean, I think that there are so many ways we might touch on a few later today about, uh, you know, some ways that you can try out and see what might work out for you. Yeah, it seems like a, an absolutely essential tool uh, as there's, you know, potentially a, a lot of various stimuli coming in. And uh, this is where I'd kind of written down something that I'd noticed um, with empaths and, and being in relationship with other people as someone who's sensitive and not only feels the emotions and sensitivities or uh, sensations of others, but when you care, it, it can be um, kind of like this sense of, of duty and responsibility to want to support the other person. And uh, the phrase I hear a lot is, you know, um, taking on the emotions of others, you know, feeling responsible for the feelings and the happiness of another person. And um, I just kind of written down, I call that the empath trap. And mm -hmm. uh, so I just wondered if, if you want to just kind of uh, expand on, uh, you know, this kind of common challenge, I think, that comes up for sensitive people, especially when it's people that you're close to and, and that you really love. Yeah, I love that phrase, the empath trap. <laughs> that's really great. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a really great way of clarifying that. Um, so, yeah, when you're in the empath trap, and I think there's a few different ones, like, you can just feel completely overwhelmed by emotion and unable to fight your way out. I mean, like you're in a wet paper bag and it's just like, I can't get out. All I, I could just feel this feeling and, you know, it just kind of takes over everything. And you might notice that, especially when you're around a person who's experiencing intense emotion and you just get in the feeling. And in what you were saying, Dan, that it becomes almost a compulsive need to repair their pain. And um, yeah. It's, 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 it's caring on one hand, but on another hand, it's like, you want to ask yourself, why do I feel this need to repair this person's pain? And there can be different reasons. Uh, one may be a trauma response. If we have been in our, especially in our years of, of developing our nervous system and growing up, if we've been with someone who was dangerous emotionally or physically felt dangerous to us 
then we might have started to hone in and really watch and pay attention in a hypervigilant way to, you know, looking for scanning the environment, scanning that person for signs of danger. And um, if that's the case, in order to keep ourselves safe. And so that can create a compulsive hmm. need to make sure that everybody around you is okay. Like, you know, because it gets extended to other people who are who are not dangerous, you know, but that's just something that got got into our nervous system and now we're carrying it forward and extending it to other people. Um, you know, that's one thing that can happen. Um, also, if we have kind of over-identified with another person, maybe a parent or a caregiver or someone else, um, that we never really differentiated ourselves from other people. And so, again, there's kind of a need to be paying attention to the people around you to make sure they're okay. And, you know, how this can look sometimes is, you know, imagine that you are living with other people. Maybe it's a spouse, children, or, you know, just a friend. And when they come home and they're, you know, in an intense mood of some kind, that there's this feeling on your part, this, this drive to to take care of their mood somehow. Um, maybe you feel like I've got to I've got to ask them, you know, I've got to make sure that they're okay. I've got to help them get to a different place, or um, you know, maybe if I can make them comfortable, you know, just various ways that we might. And and caring is from this. I mean, that is a caring but it's a compulsive kind of caring. And when we're in a compulsive caring, we may not really be doing what's helpful for the other person. We might even be unconsciously, inadvertently enabling this other person in some way so that it might relieve them, um, but it might not actually help them to grow and take responsibility for their own feelings and needs. And it most certainly becomes exhausting to ourselves. And ultimately, when... You know, we're in that dynamic. It can be really hard. Um, a lot of times people tell me, gosh, I don't really know what I feel. I don't know what I need. Haven't really learned to identify our own feelings and needs because we haven't differentiated them from the feelings and needs of other people. And there can be um, a lot of different kinds of challenges that come out of that. Um, so I think that when you, if you notice things like that, then it's time to peek under the cover and see what's up with you. Yeah. And that, that brings up a good question. And, and maybe this is something that's not a, an easy question to answer and it's not, uh, you know, doesn't have like a very, uh, straightforward answer, but, uh, what would be your guidance on, let's say, uh, I'm at, I, I'm home and then my spouse comes in and, you know, there's like a, a grief and a sadness that I can feel, or maybe there's, you know, a, a, a fiery frustration. Um, how, how do I differentiate or let's say uh, even, even more difficult in a room of people. And there may be a few different emotions that I feel, uh, as a result of being in, in the shared space with other people. Uh, how am I able to differentiate what is, coming into me through them and what is of my own? Yeah, I think the first step is always just noticing that, hey, there seems to be something amiss here. I'm either feeling overwhelmed by emotion or I seem to be feeling things that 
I'm not sure they're mine. Like, I'm, I'm just not even, I, I have no reason to feel these things. And yet I'm having these feelings. Or, yeah, these are feelings that I'm having, but they're much bigger than I think my own feelings mm. are. So the first thing is just to notice that. And once you notice that, then you can take that pause that we talked about earlier. And, you know, you might take a deep breath. Kind of pull in your antenna. Just imagine that you have antenna out into the world, because you do. And just imagine that you're pulling them into yourself, into your own energy field. And then you can imagine that um, these are all things that you can do one by one as steps, or you can just try out one thing or, you know, but then you can imagine yourself inside of a sphere, which is your energy field, right? It's kind of an oval. And you can imagine it as if, if you're familiar with the nice um, soft glow of a salt lamp. And just imagine yourself inside that salt lamp. And that's you. And the energies and emotions of people who are outside of that lamp can't really come in. They can perhaps touch the edges, but they can't come in. Um, or you could imagine it as a crystal sphere, if you like that better, whatever kind of crystal you like. You can imagine it as a, a drop of, you know, a rainbow and so you're just inside of that and that kind of a skin, it's your place, it's your space, it's your home, your energy field, and it belongs to you. And I also think it's useful to clarify that we say we're taking on the emotions of others, and it does, in a sense, that's true. But what might be more true is that someone's vibrational emotion touches on our energy field and starts inviting it in that way. And so mm -hmm. there's a tendency for us to resonate with that. And here's an important key is that it's really important to recognize the two different ways of resonating. I can resonate in such a way that I start to actually allow my full vibration to become um, what touched on my field. Or... I can notice it and like, oh, that's information. Huh, interesting. And that's a high-level skill. So it's not something that I expect an untrained person to automatically just understand, although you might. Um, but it's a very essential thing to learn. So as a healer and um, guide, I myself, you know, am in this state all the time so that I am receiving information from the person I'm working with. And noticing what they feel because, yes, I actually feel that. But I notice that it's a feeling and I can tell that it's not mine. Now, there are times when I'm like, huh, I I think that I feel this too. And then, and then I don't have to differentiate. I can just say, oh, you know what? I think this person is feeling something kind of similar to what I feel. I really get that, but I'm not going to allow it to amplify that vibration I feel so that I'm overwhelmed. I'm still a discrete, individuated person inside of my own energy field, 
even though I'm allowing someone else's energy to influence mine, at least for a moment. Does that make sense? Does that seem clear? Yeah, it does. And and it brings up a question. And I, and I notice this, uh, this dynamic that emerges with sensitive people, there tends to be like a blame dynamic, right? So like, let's say someone else is going through something that's emotionally heavy. And then they're like, oh my gosh, this is so much. And it's because I'm around this person. But I think there's an important distinction that you made where, yes, we feel something, uh, an emotion of someone else, but then there's there's a point of uh, of choice. Do we let it amplify within our own field and let that become overwhelming to us? And I, and I think that's an important distinction to make because I think to, you know, to blame others for uh, what gets charged and resonated and amplified in your own field it, it is maybe a, a bit uh, a bit misguided. And I think it's important to take responsibility for what we allow to be amplified in our own field, uh, if, if we are, if we can be at choice. Yeah, 100%. And it's also okay to notice, like, you know, I really don't think um, that this is all mine. And yet I'm feeling it as if it's all mine. And it's a problem. So this is my problem. <laughs> like, you know, I, I'm coming to understand that just because this person's vibration is overwhelming mine, that's that's actually my thing to deal with. And so I need and want to learn how to change that, um, how to grow and evolve so that I don't have to get overwhelmed. And, and the closer you are to someone, the more challenging that can be. Um, I understand that, you know, yeah. with parents and children, that can be overwhelming. So, and also I just want to clarify, we're not talking about here, you know, being in an abusive relationship. Because if you're in an abusive relationship, then there's a whole other set of things that need to be addressed, right? And if you're in an abusive relationship and you're an empath, then you probably are getting really overwhelmed. You're probably very hypervigilantly paying attention to the emotional state of the other person. You know, looking out for cues that they're getting triggered um, because they come back and, and cause you harm um, and maybe cause harm to other people in your environment. So I just want to clarify that you know, there's a distinction between a relationship that's fundamentally healthy, you know, may have some challenges involved, and one that's fundamentally abusive. Yeah, that's an important distinction. And those are really tricky and subtle dynamics, you know, because I feel like, and, and, you know, I'd love to know your thoughts on this. I think sometimes when we experience really heavy emotions, it's really hard to see things clearly for what they are. Um, especially when it comes to relational dynamics. And so um, I think that's, you know, sometimes where it can be really helpful to have the perspective of, you know, a, a third party type person, you know, friend, colleague, therapist, etc. Because it's really hard to get a sense of the dynamics and kind of see what's happening when your emotions uh, and relationship to that person are so strong. Yeah, it really is. And it's important to, um, you know, when you turn turn to that third person, you know, is this someone who is able to, a lot of times what we have learned to do is to try to fix someone else's problem or we identify with their problem and then we kind of jump on board with their point of view. So if a friend comes to me and they're frustrated with, you know, their spouse say, and, you know, 
am I going to jump on board with them and say, yeah, you know, that spouse shouldn't have done that. That was a bad thing. Am I going to defend the spouse in order to try to fix the situation and calm it down because it's hard for me to handle that level of emotion Mm -hmm. that's being brought into my environment? And I want to feel peace. So the only way I know to feel peace and not get overwhelmed by emotion is to have this other person, you know, fix their problem. Um, there's, there's things that we're taught to do um, that aren't really very. <laughs> so, so when we're the person reaching out to a third party to give us some balanced um, feedback, then, you know, we want to learn to identify. And this may be a whole podcast, Dan, that we want to do. How do you identify someone who's a good party for you to turn to mm. for this kind of feedback? Because it's a high level skill. You know, it really is a high level skill um, that's not taught in our culture very frequently to learn how to be present with another person and their emotions and their needs and to simply stay present and offer reflection, um, offer validation for their perspective without fully buying into it um, Mm. and helping that person to come to what's true for them. That's a very high-level skill that is not taught a lot in our culture. And um, there are definitely some really beautiful places to learn that skill. Uh, But we have to kind of have sought it out, unless we're one of those lucky people who had it modeled for us as we were growing up. (laughs) Yeah, which is probably very few and far between of us. Yeah, it seems like it is. It does seem like that. Um, For some reason, that's just not something that our culture has prioritized. Right. And this brings up another element that uh, I just want to shed a little bit more light on with this dynamic of uh, the relational aspects of someone going through something difficult. It seems like, let's say, for example, my spouse is going through something difficult and I have this yearning to want to fix it or to want to get involved. It really kind of seems like from my own needs of whether it's being needed or it's not having, you know, an, an overwhelming emotional situation to have to then, you know, deal with. It's like, I want to quite find the kind of the, the, the quickest way to get this to settle down and not be like a fire to have to put out. And it really, it, it kind of takes the guise of, of I'm, oh, this person, you know, I'm, I'm going to take on the emotions of this other person so they feel better. But really, it kind of seems at the root of it to be uh, predicated on what would be my own needs. Yeah, you know, to be needed or or to be for it to not be an you know a, a big emotional outburst. Yeah, and I'm so glad you mentioned that too about needing to be needed because that's such an important thing for many of us as empaths. Um, and I'll come back to your question, but I just want to amplify a little bit of what you said because that's it's so common for us to really enjoy being needed, and you know that's a that's a natural need that human beings have, you know, to be valued, to be needed. And so, you know, to acknowledge, oh, I have a need to be needed and then go from there, you know, um, and, and, and this is something we can touch on again is how do I distinguish then what my actions are? And so like in the um, example that you gave, you know, I, I would refer uh, someone to nonviolent communication uh, is a really beautiful uh approach designed by Marshall Rosenberg. Um, There's, you know, he has some books. I think the first one is actually called Nonviolent Communication, which is a beautiful way, first of starting out how you communicate with yourself and then how you communicate with other people. Um, And so, you know, it touches on this very thing. So like, okay, someone comes home. um, I'm noticing 
my partner is, you know, feeling out of sorts? You know, is it something that I feel up to and able to inquire into in that moment? Um, if so, how much do I get involved? Do I just say, hey, I noticed that you seem to be feeling kind of out of sorts. Sorry about that. I also am a little bit exhausted. I need to go take a shower. Let's check in later. You know, that would be one avenue. Um, the other is, you know, just checking in. Hey, I noticed that you seem to be feeling out of sorts. Am I right? You know, is it something you want to talk about? And proceed from there. Um, and then learning the skill set, practicing the skill set for how do I listen and show care and help this person without letting my need become dominant. Of course, your needs are going to be in there. But how am I going to respond in such a way that doesn't allow my need to be the dominant thing? Because that's not going to really, truly help the other person. Oh, and let me go back to NVC. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I, I didn't want to forget, yeah, about um, NVC or nonviolent communication. There's also um, something called mindful, compassionate dialogue that, it's very similar to NVC. Um, Lachelle Shard Lowe has some beautiful work on that. She, her, um, it's called Wise Heart. And you can find that online. She has a whole community. She has a lot of rules and she has things to, um, you know, I think she does some private work or she does group work. That's a really beautiful um, way to look into this particular technique. Um, also, there's the Nonviolent Communication or NBC Academy, which you can find online um, that offers a lot of things and helps you to connect with people who teach this framework. I mean, I'm also adept in this as well, as are many other therapists and counselors and some healers. So that may be something that you'd like to look into if this seems to be a challenge. Yeah, and it and too, like this is something that I've struggled with myself in it's uh when someone's in a feeling of a very strong emotion right is in a tough place what you say and how you say it is so crucial right to how that exchange is going to go and how you support that other person and it can ju just be the slight tone of your voice that takes you know a sense like you don't care or that you're impatient or you know it, it's 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 so crucial just the exact words that you say because when someone's in a tough spot and they're sensitive, every word that you say is taken, uh, you know, with, with so much, uh, gravity. And so I, I think having a, a sense of training and, a, uh, you know, some tools to be able to work with, uh, so that your tone and your words, uh, can be received in, in a very compassionate way and, uh, reflect, you know, the care that you, uh, exhibit for that, for that other person. Yeah, I mean, 100%. The tone, the posture, the facial expression, in other words, I mean, all of these things can be triggers for the other person. And you may or may not know that. <laughs> so, because we don't know the triggers of other people. So it can get really entangled really fast. And um, it has been said that it's the primary indication of how an interaction will turn out is how it is approached initially. So I think you're touching on something really important there, Dan. Yeah. And then that, uh, there's, there's one more thing that I wanted to share. And, uh, I found this really important. There was, uh, some physicians that had, um, uh, spent many years in, in the mental health field 
And they found these common traits, uh, especially with chronic illnesses and even like autoimmune uh, type of illnesses associated with suppression and repression of the self. And these are things that I commonly also see uh, with people that are very sensitive and empathic. I just wondered if if you uh, had seen this as well. Uh, So there's five uh, common traits that they see. An automatic and compulsive concern for the emotional needs of others while ignoring one's own. So I think we've touched on that. Mm -hmm. A rigid identification with social role, duty, and responsibility. Mm -hmm. That seems like almost every mom. Overdriven, externally focused multitasking based on the conviction that one must justify one's existence by doing and giving. Mm -hmm. Repression of healthy, self-protective aggression, anger, And harboring compulsively and acting out of two beliefs. The first is, I am responsible for how other people feel, and I must never disappoint anyone. Yeah, that's, that's, um, well, well written, well spoken, and, um, certainly speaks to a lot of, a lot of challenges that we face. And, I just want to comment that, um, you know, when we're talking about these relational dynamics, um, you know, these these are relational dynamics that can be true for anyone, but I think they're just amplified for the empath. And so I just, I think it might be useful to kind of touch on for a minute, like, what's it like to be in relation, an intimate relationship with an empath? And, you know, maybe both people are empaths, or maybe just one person is an empath. So... The beauty of that is the level of care that can genuinely be offered is is so lovely and so wonderful to be on the receiving end of that kind of care. And for some of the reasons that Dan just outlined, it can also become a challenge not only to the empath but to the partner of the empath. Um, if I feel compulsively the need to be helpful in giving, then it seems like, well, great. <laughs> Somebody's going to be helpful in giving all the time. But it may be very difficult for them to have their offer refused um, mm. or rejected, as they might feel it, especially if that person has been traumatized in some way. So there are some just absolute beautiful things about being in a relationship with an empath and some absolutely challenging things um, about that. And I just think that it's really important to, um, you know, to be willing to learn about those things because, uh, you know, if you are the partner of an empath and not an empath yourself, then it's a lovely gesture to learn more about them. And I think that it would help you to understand them because I can guarantee you that they're trying to understand you. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely, they are. Yeah, and if I could comment on that from personal experience. Sure. Uh, yeah, because my partner's also uh, very sensitive and empathic. And there's the, I don't want to say double-edged sword because that sounds negative, but there's the uh, two sides of the coin where we are always sensitive to what's going on in the other person. So in one sense, there's there's not often a misunderstanding about how an, uh, the other person feels, which is wonderful because that can be a, a great source of conflict 
um, like you said, and someone not being able to observe and understand, you know, what someone else is going through. Uh, and maybe of course not the content, but at least, you know, the emotional state. Um, with that said, you know, it's kind of like, there's, there's nowhere to hide. Uh, you know, the, the, the big <laughs> yeah. light is shined on everything that happens. And, uh, a, a quick little aside of this, um, one time, you know, she was upset about something and she came down the stairs and, uh, you know, she was walking towards me and I just saw her face. And then I was just like, oh man, I just looked up and said, Hey, what's wrong? And then she was like, whoa, I, I hadn't even really processed what it was that was going on. And like, I could already recognize it and see it and, you know, in her face and her body and her energy field uh, before she really could have like a sense of what it was and actually sit down and talk about it. Um, so it's, it's, uh, it's wonderful in that way. But, uh, but also, you know, it's um, the, the intensity is really felt on both sides. And so this is also a dynamic and maybe this is something that we could expand on Amy where, Let's say, for example, you know, I'm going through something that's really tough. And actually, I'll give it in the uh, the opposite direction because that's the, the way it's happened more. You know, she's going through something, but I don't feel like I'm in a place, you know, to really be able to support her um, without, uh, you know, without being non-judgmental, without enabling, you know, without these other dynamics that are unsupportive to both of us. Um, you know, recognizing the limitations of my own self and and knowing what my own needs are, and so like there's someone who needs support and and needs something, but that the other person really isn't in a place to give, and you're both really sensitive, and uh, so that kind of this this unmet need, uh, you know, can can be a you know a, a a source of a source of tension and you know potential you know issue to to have to work through. Yeah, thanks for clarifying that because that's um yeah, there's an intensity. There can be an intensity um that comes there. And if both people are feeling off balance in a given moment and both people are empaths, uh that yeah, that can be quite an emotional challenge. Um so, you know, giving each other space, whether that means psychological space, physical space, you know, sometimes becomes important and um and recognizing, hey, I need space. I do care, but I'm not able to care well at this moment. <laughs> yeah. I will come back when I'm able to care better. <laughs> you know. And the other thing that what you said brought to my mind is that sometimes as empaths, we're so used to picking up on the emotional climate of other people. And we think we're right. We think that we're interpreting correctly. And we probably are a big portion of the time. But I feel like it's really important to be able to say, I might be wrong. I could be wrong. It seems to me that you are feeling angry. Um, I noticed that from your tone of voice and the expression on your face. If that other person is saying, I'm not angry, you know, maybe they're saying it that way. Well, they don't know that yet, you know, <laughs> or maybe they're really not angry and they're saying, uh, I'm not angry. I don't know why you think that, you know, and it's like, oh, yeah, I could be wrong. And even if that person seems to still be exhibiting that they're angry or upset that, you know, oh, okay. You know, you can just accept, you don't have to argue your point. It's how important is it that you're right about this? Because it's the other mm -hmm. person's energy field. It's their climate. So these are some of the things that um, we learn as we walk through our empathic evolution and development. And, and it's important for me, oh, okay, I'm noticing that that tone of voice or that facial expression triggered me 
Now I'm feeling angry or scared or hurt. I'll go take care of myself. If I want to be involved in um, healing, then let me go heal myself um, and take care of my own emotional environment. And this person is really responsible for their own, even though, yeah, I'd like to be able to help, but maybe I can't. So there's two things. One is I might be wrong, and two is I may not be able to help. That's tough to swallow for a lot of empaths. Yeah. But it's essential. It, it is. And, and uh, when, you, when you brought up the point about being right, I just wanted to make a note about this. Um, there's a comedian, Mike Birbiglia, that has uh, a funny uh, bit in, in his stand-up about this really tough lesson that he learned with his wife. And I think many people, especially if you're in relationship with an empath, um, that is one of the common pitfalls is you know thinking that uh, this interchange between you is like an argument that you want to win and the important part is to be right or to prove that you're right. And when it comes to emotions it's like there is no right and wrong (laughs) there really isn't it's just it's just what honoring what the other person feels and i think surrendering that sense of wanting to be right and you know get the upper hand in an argument is is really um it's a slippery slope and and can cause a lot of frustration because the other person is going to feel like you aren't in tune with them and, and and it may give off the sense that you don't care um, so I, I think that's an important thing to really look at and, um, you know, for yourself, investigate whether that's, that's worth keeping, especially when the emotions are very high, uh, in a given time. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, to that point, some of the things that, some of the ways that we can react is to tell people, you know, like if we get uncomfortable or especially if we're feeling the need to be right is we're telling that person, well, you're overreacting. Um, you shouldn't feel that way. Here's a better way to handle that. Or, um, you know, you're just interpreting. And none of those things will will create closeness in the relationship. They will probably trigger either inflammation. Um, someone may shut down. Someone may become, you know, more invasive and needy because they're needing to fix the problem. Or, you know, none of those things are going to lead toward you know, more connection and more fulfillment in the relationship. So again, these are just things that it's good to recognize and then, you know, be willing to take a deeper dive into that perhaps. And especially if I'm an empath or especially if I'm with an empath, then, you know, these are really even more important things for me to begin learning about. Yeah, hundred percent. And uh, there's this quote that um, I found from Brene Brown, and if I had to kind of sum it up in one sentence, I would take this from her. Uh, in this dynamic, and in, in you know the question of how do I well how do I support the other person, right? Because it seems like what I say doesn't seem to help and just continues triggering. And um, and then maybe this can kind of lead us into maybe a quick intro about healing presence. Uh, She says, empathy is simply listening, holding space without withholding judgment, emotionally connecting, and communicating that incredibly healing message of you're not alone. Yeah, really beautiful. I remember a, um, a 
group that I did some workshops with. Um, I mean, I was one of the participants at this time. So, and I remember that the leader of the workshop, one of the things that she would say when one person was talking about something that was painful for them, that, you know, she would say, you may not have had this kind of situation before, or you may feel like that she's, she or he is overreacting or, you know, whatever. But ask yourself, have I ever felt this emotion before? And I thought that was a really helpful, like, have I ever felt sadness? Have I ever felt grief or loss? Have I ever, have I ever felt anger? Have I ever felt rage? Have I ever felt, um, you know, any of whatever? Have I ever felt that some of my needs were unmet? Have I ever felt that I needed more caring, more connection, more space, more individuation? You know, how have I ever had these needs? Have I ever had these feelings? And that's a way to identify with the other person. Yeah, you're not alone. I, I don't know what it's like to feel what you're feeling exactly, but I do know what it's like to feel grief. And, you know, that's something that you can, if that's a tool that helps you, it may be a helpful tool when relating to your friend or your spouse or your child. I think that's a great tool because I think all of us, especially, you know, once you're into adulthood, you've had several iterations of probably every major emotion, mm-hmm. right? If if you're really honest with yourself. And so that's a great question in that moment. All right. I'm seeing that my friend, my partner, my child is feeling this. And then have I felt that before myself? And then maybe sit with, all right, what did that feel like? You know, how did I respond what kind of support did I need? What kind of support did I get? And then what kind of support can I give And um, with, with this person that I love and, and what they're going through and maybe try to get a sense of, of what their needs are and, uh, and support that? I think that's a great tool. Yeah, and it's equally important to, you know, when we get caught up in emotion, um, sometimes we forget that the emotion is a, a signal of something. The emotional signaling is signaling that something is amiss or it's signaling that, hey, everything is going great. So like if I'm feeling happy and overjoyed and connected, you know, it's like, yeah, my needs are being met. Things are going well. If I'm feeling angry or frustrated or sad, then, hey, something's amiss. And so it sort of is a signal to begin a process of asking, what am I missing? And how can I get that need met? And when we do that well within ourselves, then we can communicate. We have a better chance of communicating that to our partner in a useful way. And again, I'm going to refer you back to nonviolent communication and mindful, compassionate dialogue, which do a great job of helping us understand how to do this in ourselves and how to work with another person on this. And to bring it back to the empath, I just want to say this is one of the beautiful things is, you know, when an empath learns to recognize that the emotions that he or she is feeling and experiencing that have sourced partly or fully in another person or another place or, or animal or whatever, then um, we have the opportunity to ask ourselves, what's, what's the need that's being signaled here? You know, not how can I fix this, mm. which is, may sound similar, but it's actually, there's a first step. It's like, what is the need? I wonder what the need is that's being signaled. And you may not know, but you can take some guesses and ask. 
you can ask the other person, you know, what do you need? That's sometimes a question that someone who's in a lot of pain needs to be asked. They may need to be asking themselves yet, and they haven't done it yet. So what do you need may trigger that person. Gosh, I don't know. I'm not sure what I need. And for them, if they take that next step, if we take that next step of continuing to seek out what, what is the need that's not being met, then I have more information. When I have more information, I have more power. I'm more empowered to get that need met. And that, getting that need met, is going to assist me in shifting the emotional state that I'm in. I think that was a really important perspective. Um where I've heard a, a dad before there was a, there, there was two kids and, and they had a, a little uh, disagreement and then, you know, one girl uh, went off and then he said to her, hey, uh, go fix it, mm. you know? And I think that was, yeah, that's a perspective that you're speaking on is let, let's maybe not look at it as a, a broken, you know, piece of wood that we need to put back together. Um, but look at, the underlying what is what is the unmet need? Uh, what is this what is this emotion signaling about what's happening to us? And what is it that is is uh, causing us to feel uh, off? And and what what is the unmet need uh, that's that we're being shown? I remember writing down uh, in a workshop that we had done a couple years ago. Every feeling is a visitor. Mm. Um, and so it's like looking at these uh, emotions as teachers. It's it's trying to signal and teach you something about yourself and, and why you're reacting and responding to your environment or the people in it in a certain way. And um, there's this short quote I like, emotion is the engine of maturation. And I think uh, when we're honest with ourselves, there's... Uh, there's there's no there's not a whole lot of of, of maturation uh, on the human uh, you know existence w without some you know emotional swings, and uh, I just think that's a really important perspective to take and not looking at it as a a simple problem like a, a broken thing, but um, looking at it as is what is the missing link? What is the teaching? Uh, what's what is the thing that I'm missing? Uh, you know, in terms of a of a unmet, ir irreducible need. I love that. And every feeling is a visitor. That's really wonderful. And, you know, that kind of points also to something else that I think is useful for us to just kind of um, bring forward for people as an avenue for learning and healing. Um, every feeling is a visitor. And yet sometimes some visitors can be really overwhelming, right? <laughs> So yeah, <laughs> you know, I'm just sitting here suffering through like, I can't wait for this person to leave or I can't wait for this emotion to change. And so we actually have a lot of power over um, how we handle emotion from a physiological perspective. So it comes from understanding our nervous system a little bit better. Um, polyvagal theory, um, understanding about brain waves. We have different kinds of states of being that are physiological or largely physiological. And um, there are ways for us to, I mean, most of us know, you know, take a deep breath, right? I mean, that's one of the first things, but it can become, you know, there's more to that in terms of really shifting your state of being. Because when you've shifted back from a fight, flight, freeze, or fawn state, 
or from a shutdown state. These are the five states of beings that are that are not flow state, right? That are not conducive. I mean, sure, if a tiger's chasing me, then I want to run, you know. It's, um, but there are times when we recognize that the state of being we're in is not really helpful um, to the current situation. And so we want to move perhaps back into what I might call a flow state. And there are ways that we can do that. When we've moved back into a flow state, then we are more, we're less reactive and more responsive. So we're smarter. We're actually smarter. We're wiser. We're open to, um, we're open to intuitive knowledge. We're open to um, higher wisdom, which might come through as inspiration or insight. Our brain is working more clearly because it's not clogged up by all kinds of random thinking and, you know, it's not firing in all different kinds of ways. There are just a lot of reasons why we're actually wiser and more intelligent from a flow state. So if we learn how to come back to that flow state from the other state, when it's relevant to do that, then we actually have access to, what did you say earlier about... Um, Dan, about uh, feelings, emotions are lead us into evolution or something like that? Uh, emotions are the engine of maturation. Yes, exactly. And when we come from um, a state of being that's not helping us into a state of being that is, then we have that opportunity to evolve and mature in relationship and to actually diminish the things that we're triggered by, which is creates ease and peace in our being. Not boring peace, because sometimes we think that, you know, peace can be boring. That usually is because, you know, we're repressing things, right? <laughs> if we're repressing things, we get bored. Um, but when you're really at peace, then you're free to do the things you want to do, to engage, to play, to rest, you know. Uh, and then also just one more thing I wanted to touch on is responsibility for needs, because as empaths, we become so much more empowered if, with our gift, and not to mention within ourselves, when we recognize who's responsible for their own needs. So I'm responsible for getting my needs met, and if I have a need to feel needed, hmm, wonder how I can get that need met in ways that are not intrusive or demanding upon someone else. Um, and that person has needs that aren't being met. I'd love to help them get them met, but it's not my responsibility. I'm not supposed to mm. do that. I don't have to do that. I might be able to help them take a step. I might not, but it's not my responsibility to resolve that for them. Um, and I think that's just a really important kind of destination you know, a goal yeah. for us to reach for, oh, this is what it means to be a mature empath. And this is where I seem to be standing on that continuum of evolution and growth and maturity. So, you know, oh, here, now I have some ideas about how I can get to a place I want to go where I can be more helpful, more caring, less overwhelmed, and more connected with other people um, without having responsibility that is Exhaust. Yeah. And if I may add one piece, I think this is an, uh, an important part of that process. I think sometimes we have a tendency to, in our uh, instant gratification, kind of, you know, um, 
get there through you know uh, the the shortened corners approach where oh well I just I just want to feel uh, peace or you know I just want to feel less overwhelmed I just want to feel settled I just want to feel balanced but I think it's important to um, leave time and space and allowing the expression of emotions mm-hmm. especially certain ones um, because like the, uh, we mentioned uh, earlier with the traits. Uh, of people that suffer from chronic illness, a lot of that has to do with suppressed and repressed emotions. Yeah, and so especially when with like anger, and I think that's a, a cultural piece that's important. Um, you know, and that's I think more socially acceptable for men and guys to express their anger, mm-hmm. but maybe not so much for women. And um, there was some data that was showing, you know, instances of, uh, you know, PTSD and and mental health in women was like two times what it was of men. Uh, within the the data that they had looked at, and I think that's a really important piece, uh, but not only for anger, but also for you know grief and sadness, and uh, acknowledging that sometimes those processes of moving through those emotions may take more time than is convenient, and sometimes they come up at inconvenient times. Right, you're in the middle of a uh, you know a, a group, or you're in the middle of you know your kids uh, you know ballet, and then it's like man, I've I, Something just came up, and I've got some intense emotions, and um, you know we can't always you know make time um, and and give ourselves the environment in the right space. But uh, as much as we're able to, and I think that's a really important process to then arrive at this destination, like you said, um, that we want to feel where we're connected and we're balanced, and we have healthy relationships that are founded upon solid dynamics. Um, and we're really in tune with ourselves uh, and, and able to be in service to others. But I think a big part of that is is honoring uh, the emotions that come up and, and not suppressing or repressing and uh, let them have uh, take their course uh, until they have taught us everything that we need to be taught. Yeah, 100%. That's true, too. And so, you know, to me, that begs the question like, okay, how do I know when to utilize my, you know, coming back to a flow state and when do I, you know, and how... Is it okay for me to express my emotion? And by okay, I mean safe, you know, um, mm-hmm. safe for me. What, you know, and, and these, again, these may be things that require some, um, you know, learning. It, you may want to find some professionals who are able to help you with that. Um, or, you know, there's, I think, plenty of books. There are podcasts, YouTube channels, and a lot of places to look to have these kinds of questions um, answered. And, I um, invite you, if you, you know, feel called and connected, that you can, you know, make a connection with myself or Dan as well. These are things that we help people with every day. Yes, as as we continue to learn ourselves. And I will say one thing that I, you know, I've always have been very physical. So, um, you know, sometimes I would just be like out in nature and just, you know, take a stick and break it in half. And, and just something about that expression, that sound, um, you know, for, for anger, for example, it would help me uh, release. But recently, uh, I've been really enjoying drawing and painting. Mm. Um, and, and, and even with something like uh, with anger, which normally you think like, you know, you don't have quite the, you know, the patience and to sit down and grab even the necessary materials, you know, you just need like a quick outburst. But um, it's been really interesting, where a lot of times I would just make a simple drawing and uh, and then and then the colors I would choose and the shapes that it would take would to me really represent the emotion that I was going through and it was a great feedback system. Um, so I found that a, a really good tool. And uh, I think always you know 
having uh, people in your corner to lean on. Um, you know, even if it's just a, a text or a quick phone call, um, you know, again, like this, uh, the, this reaffirming this notion that I'm not alone with it. Yeah. Cause I think that, that can be where, you know, where someone tends to shut down and then, um, and, and then they think it's, you know, it's all on them. It's, uh, everything gets stuck inside their own head and body. And, um, you know, when, when you feel it, uh, when you feel ready and sometimes even when you maybe don't feel ready, but you know, you need it, you know, reaching out uh, for support is, is such an important part. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks for, for bringing that forward. And I too find uh, a creative outlet to be a really useful one along with, you know, just being in nature and, you know, maybe being more physical and active. And um, I mean, I have to say that, you know, contact and semi-contact sports were certainly a great um, tool for me <laughs> when, <laughs> at certain points in my life. Um, I, don't, I wouldn't want to lean on that as a, an expression by itself because I think it's also important to, um, you know, come to some inspirations and some realizations and things like that. But, um, you know, getting that energy out, yeah, it can be super helpful. Yeah. And of course, uh, you know, practices that are physical, um, but it can be great for all emotions, you know, something like yoga and Tai Chi that have energetic elements and um, help us realign our, not only our physiology, but also our uh, energetic bodies uh, into a, a, a more healthy, aligned geometrical structure um, is, is also really important uh, as along with, you know, chiropractic work, uh, which are all, you know, kind of functions of uh, supporting the physiology and the, the energy field into becoming more aligned. Yeah, and I'll just quickly also say that, um, you know, uh, chiropractic and acupuncture and Reiki and other kinds of healing methodologies also help to realign the energy field. And sometimes there can be tremendous releases of emotional energy um, that are really different than you would expect. <laughs> like it just goes whoosh and it's like, yeah. oh, that's just gone. How did that happen? <laughs> it just, <laughs> it just emanated through your, your vibration, you know, and it was able to be released. So all of these are different ways. There's so many different ways. And, um, yeah, I, uh, I'm not sure where do we want to go from here, Dan? I mean, it seems like we're kind of wrapping up. Yeah. Is, um, maybe the, uh, maybe ending with, uh, aligning, uh, with the wisdom of the higher self and, and kind of leading it, um, you know, on out from there. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, it's possible to set an intention and you get to decide what your intention is. Um, but you know, what's the intention that I want as an empath? Like how much do I want? When do I want to receive to be connected in an empathic way? And when do I not like maybe out in public, I really don't want to pick up on every single vibration as I, you know, walk through Walmart. I mean, that just might be a bit much, or, you know, I'm at the music festival and I'm in the center of all of this, you know, people who are having you know hundreds of people there's all different kinds of emotional fields i don't want to be um you know so you can ask your higher self your divine self your higher wisdom however you think about that to create to align with this desire that you have i only want to be empathically connected with the people that i'm closest to um, or I only want to be empathically connected with those whom uh, 
I'm meant to serve, you know, however you want to set that. And that absolutely works. Um, I learned that, you know, many, many, many years ago, and it has served me really well. Um, you may have already noticed that you're connected with some spirit allies. Befriending and aligning with those beings can certainly help you with life in general and certainly with your empathic skills. I just want to make a note that you want to make sure that the um, higher beings are actually higher beings who have the wisdom that is needed to help you and not just kind of fourth dimensional astral beings who are who might want to help but don't have the wisdom or who are opposing as higher guides for their own purposes. Um, and again, we're touching on something that you may not automatically know how to do. So you might want to find someone who can help you make that distinction. And then just aligning with the wisdom of the higher self. Um, you know, you can ask, uh, you know, like when you receive empathic information, um, you know, is this my emotion? Is this something I'm meant to help someone with at this time? And, you know, you're listening for the answers that will come from, you know, that higher wisdom that you have. And if I am meant to contribute at this time, in what way am I meant to contribute? Because when you don't ask these questions and you just follow that desire to be of assistance, which is laudable, it's wonderful, but you may inadvertently enable someone else, meaning that you may be alleviating um, their immediate feeling but not actually helping them to learn how to handle it for themselves. Um, it's also certainly going to overwhelm you and can sometimes put you into situations that are not helpful for you or for the people around you. So I think those are just some, oh, and yeah, you just spoke about breath and body um, also. And we already talked about the salt lamp or the healing crystal. So those are just ways that it can be helpful to you. Protect yourself without having to create some kind of wall where you're completely disconnected and isolated. Yeah, and if I may add one piece to that, Amy, um, and let me know what you think about this. I found it very helpful to when I'm intention setting uh, to write it down. And it helps kind of crystallize yeah. you, what it is that, that you're trying to envision and bring forth into your energy field. And it also, you know, uh, you could also do something like make a, a crystal grid or make a certain constellation on your altar of sacred objects. Um, a lot of different ways to, to, you know, emanate this. But I think having sometimes a physical representation uh, can really help crystallize and bring that forth into the physical. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, the ceremonial aspect of that, you know, just like creating a crystal grid or something like that. It's like, oh, this is kind of a a ceremonial aspect that keeps you connected with um, your intention. Yeah, because a lot of times we have slippery memories, and so it also um, yes. is a, a, a visual tool to help you remember what it is that intention is and to remember to set your sights on it and come back to it when we get a little off balance. Yeah, I remember a few weeks ago, um, a friend of mine who is a practitioner, I had taken something to her that I wanted to work with, and you know, I really got the inspiration and the insight that I needed. And it was just so clear. And I was like, oh, that's wonderful. And the other day I saw her again and I was like, I remember that I found that the inspiration came to me and I understood exactly what I needed. 
but I completely forgot what it was. <laughs> <laughs> she had to remind me. And I think that we do this, you know, when it's something that's really new or maybe it goes against some of our earlier learned things that don't fit anymore, you know, that our minds become slippery, <laughs> as you said. Yes, they do. <laughs> yes, they do. Yeah, so that's why I find journaling uh, also not only for intention setting, but for uh, when you get insights and downloads. Um, and, and this is what, you know, we always do it right after ceremony. And I encourage people, uh, especially after their first couple of Reiki sessions, um, journal down your experience because right after it's happened, it you know, you feel it, you're thinking it, every part of your being is emanated with it, but you will forget it. There's just too much that, you know, this world demands of our mind and our cognition and too many decisions we have to make. Um, so, you know, you will forget these things. So, you know, it's never going to be more clear and you're never going to be more able to put it down into a way that you can remember the essence of it as when it first happened. So journaling throughout, uh, you know, the course of, of your experience with your intention as it unfolds, I think is a really important piece. Uh, and then you can draw a line of coherence um, as you've, you know, worked through your intention and as you work through yeah, the obstacles that you faced, uh, you know, that have associated with it uh, throughout that time. Yeah, that's great. And also, I just want to, um, you know, remind us that journaling can take a lot of different forms. So like, you know, you might draw in your journal, you know, you might have a vision that came to you in your meditation or your ceremonial experience or whatever. And, you know, when you draw that experience, it might be more, um, uh, it might speak to your to you later even more than the words, or you might just use words and not necessarily sentences. You know, um, it may even be useful for some people to, you know, like speak um, into your recording device or something like that, um, and just play with it and see. You know, and it may be different for you at different times. So yeah, those are that's a great tool. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that too, Amy. That's a great point. Um... Yeah, because it can take very many, many forms. Um, and so, you know, finding the right, uh, you know, grouping constellation that, that really works for you at a given time. Because, um, you know, I think it's more about getting it authentically expressed and, you know, putting it down, uh, you know, than, than, uh, than what it says or what it reads, right? You know, it's, it's a tool for, just for you. So it uh, is, is kind of different than, you know, writing uh, something for someone else to then gain insight from. It's, you know, it's for us. It's for you. Yeah. And if you're an artist, then, you know, drawing might not be the best thing because you might get into, you know, your brain and perfection. <laughs> <You know? laughs> or, I mean, you know, it, it, it might be perfect for you because you're an artist, but just remember that sometimes that which we've learned to fine tune may not be the best tool um, for this kind of kind of journaling. Most definitely. All right, Amy, any, uh, any last thoughts uh, about empaths uh, and emotions uh, before we wrap up episode two? No, I feel like we've kind of covered everything that fits. I mean, there's plenty to come back to, and I think we'll do more podcasts um, on the empathic topic probably, but I feel like that we covered a lot. Um, we offered some ways to help empaths and ways to understand some of the challenges you might be facing. And um, Amy, do you want to lead us out? Yeah, so just to give you guys a chance to um, kind of integrate and prepare to come back to the next stage, whatever it is that you're doing next. So just let yourself close your eyes for a moment if you 
are in a place to do that. Take a deep breath. Just kind of inquire without grasping for an answer. Was there anything from today that spoke to you deeply and especially that you want to remember to take with you? And then just like take with you anything that's of value into the rest of your day. And let yourself remember what comes next. Maybe you're just having a nice day off and you're just going to be relaxing and playing. Maybe you're going back to work. Whatever it is that you're doing, just let yourself begin to gently align with that next activity so that there's not a jarring transition, but a gentle one. And so it is. Blessings. Thank you everyone for tuning in and we'll see you next time for episode three. Blessings to you and everyone you love.